Hello everyone, I'm Ann Quiello, a senior consultant at TurkNet Leadership Group, and I'm an executive coach to successful leaders who are working to find that balance between building trust with people and focusing on the results of the organization. So in this podcast series, I'm going to be exploring how women particularly build and sustain character in all kinds of challenging contexts. The challenges women face in the workplace during COVID, ongoing issues of equality for women, passing on the virtues of character and culture to the next generations, and the balancing act that comes with parenting and a lot more. We're going to get to insights to how these women of character beat the odds. Speaking of beating the odds, uh, today I'm excited to introduce our listeners to Anita Castillo. She has had an amazing career journey during which she became only the third African-American to achieve Class A status as an LPGA golf professional doing that in uh, 2003. And even today, she's only one of six African-American LPGA professionals. And so she works tirelessly to promote the sport of golf to minority girls and young women in her role as the director of the Women in Golf Foundation. But I want to talk a little bit about the numerous awards she's received. So, for example, in 2017, Onita was named one of the top 50 teachers by the LPGA Women's Golf Magazine. She was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2015 by President Barack Obama for her lifetime commitment to building a stronger nation through volunteer service. And she was inducted into the African American Golfers Hall of Fame in 2014. So wow, Anita, it's a real honor for me to spend some time with you and uh, to hear about your journey. So welcome. Well, thank you, Anne. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I, I love doing things that involve uh, women, leadership, and all those wonderful things that we have going on. Well, there's been, along those lines, there's been a lot of interesting things I've learned about you. To start, in 1962, as a fourth grader, you and a few classmates were bused to an all-white elementary school to prove that there was integration in Cleveland, Ohio. And that's where, of course, you were growing up. But instead of being part of the class, I understand you and your classmates were isolated from the rest of the white students and were actually taught in a classroom alone. Anita, how did that experience shape your worldview? Yeah, you know, uh, hats off to you, Anne, for doing your homework, because that's something that, you know, most people don't know about me. And it really did leave a great impression upon me, even though I was, I don't know, 10 years old. But the fact that when we got on that bus the first day and the television cameras were there and, you know, the reporter was talking about the great effort that was being made by the school system to integrate. And of course, we children who were chosen, they chose us because we had good grades and, you know, just good, good students. And so we were very proud to be a part of that kind of an initiative. And then we got on the bus and they took us to the school and uh, we went into a classroom by ourselves. And because they kept us to ourselves, even our break times and, you know, we had lunch in the room and it wasn't very long before this little 10 year old knew that integration was not happening because I thought I was going to meet the white kids from the school and they would meet me and we'd have fun together, all that. 
And so what that left in my mind was that the people who were in power were able to create an illusion that made it look like they were doing something effective, but it never affected us students. And that stuck in the back of my head. I must have taught you a lesson and what I'm thinking is an integrity, you know, the lack in, of integrity in that indeed whole situation. Indeed it did. Indeed it did. Because we were looking at, you know, I didn't so much think about the news media, but I definitely thought about the city, the people in the city who made the decisions of which schools they were going to involve and uh, the school board and, you know, for them just not telling the truth and trying to create an illusion. And uh, it didn't turn out well because we only were there for one year because our parents and our community understood the lie that was being told and refused to have us be involved in it anymore. Well, good for them. Yes. Well, then I also learned that you went on to study engineering and that after you graduated, uh, you went on to become one of the only female machinists making nuclear <laughs> reactors for submarines. What was that yeah. like? <laughs> you know, I chuckle when I, when, when I hear you saying that because it was really a passion of mine to be involved in uh, that field. Because as a 14-year-old, my guidance counselor looked at, you know, my aptitude test. And she told me that based on what I see here, it looks like you should be an engineer or a mechanic. And so then she had a little frown on her face and she said, I think you should go to nursing school. So now I'm a 14 year old and I'm looking at her and I'm like, is this woman crazy? Did she just say, because I loved math. So she told me things that I thought that matched with my love. But now she tells me to be a nurse and I hate the hospital, blood, all that. So when I uh, studied for engineering, this was a passion that I felt that it would be something I'd be good at. But when I, you know, was in the career and I'm working and I had been doing it for years and it was a good company, don't get me wrong, but the realization for me as a person was that I didn't feel like it was what I was meant to do. And the company that I worked for making the nuclear reactors, our main customer was the U.S. Navy. And so I knew that I was involved in making parts for machines that would kill people. And so that didn't set well with me. So somehow I knew I would be doing something different at some point in my life. That's interesting. To me, that says a lot about recognizing fairly early on what your values were and doing work that was not aligned with those values. So wonderful life lesson. Well, yes. it, and if that's not enough, you were also a professional football player <laughs> signing up for the National Women's Football League uh, and playing for the Cleveland Brewers in 1980. So what in the world led you to become a football player? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just laughing at the questions because there's such wonderful memories with these things that we're talking about, even though they're not all positive, but sometimes negative things lead you in a positive direction. So my husband was reading the Cleveland Plain Dealer and there was an ad for uh, women football players. And of course, being the middle child of, of three kids and the boys, I had brothers, all I did was play ball. You know, I mean, 
that's what we did all day. We went outside and we played and I was really good, you know, at sports and love sports. And, uh, you know, so baseball, football, loved all that. And I applied and uh, went for tryouts and uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a former professional football player. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. <laughs> what position did you play? I was a, a wide receiver. Wide receiver. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, I had a little bit of speed. Back <laughs> I was going to say, you had to be fast. Keyword had. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we talk a lot about women and confidence and what research has shown us about women who have played in some sort of team sports or as girls. Mm -hmm in your case, as a young woman, and then you did as a girl, as you, as you mentioned, that that really helps build confidence uh, in, in young yes. women, uh, more so than mm -hmm. those who never got the chance to play in team sports. So it exactly. sounds like that was quite the confidence builder for you because you, you broke, let's see, at least two stereotypes, <laughs> if anyone's keeping track. And, but then there was golf. And uh, let's face it, Golf was mainly a white male sport at the time that you discovered your passion for the game. And I understand it was late in life at the age of 30. So how did you catch this passion? Yeah, of course, uh, you know, it's the biggest of my passions, other than, of course, family and people I love. But I had just had my daughter and my husband invited me out to the driving range because he had gone with friends. Uh, the day before, actually, to play, and he enjoyed it so much. It was a beautiful uh, May day, sort of like today. And he said, come on, bring the baby. You guys could use some fresh air. And I was just so thankful to God for my baby and my son. And just, you know, I was in a really wonderful place. And sitting there on the bench watching him hit balls, I, I was just looking at the sky thinking, how could life be better? And then before he finished his bucket of balls, he said to me, well, there's a few left. Why don't you try it? I'll hold the baby. I'll never forget it. And it's, it's like, you know, life for Onita before golf and life after. So, of course, <laughs> he held the baby and I hit a couple. Yeah, maybe there were 10 balls in there. I don't know. But uh, maybe two of them hit the sweet spot. And I mean to tell you, I was I was hooked. I had us signed up for lessons two days later and told him, come on, let's go get some clubs. So we went and bought clubs for ourselves and my son then, who was 11. And uh, it's, like I said, life uh, for Onita before golf and life after. Yeah, that's amazing. There's nothing like that sweet sound. <laughs> it's euphoric, isn't it? It is. It is. Well, so now I'm curious, uh, how did you decide to actually go pro? and achieve the Ladies Professional Golf Association, which is the LPGA Class A distinction. And, yeah. uh, and I'm wondering if it, at any time did you feel that the odds were just too great against that? Absolutely. To answer the last question first, I, it took me literally seven, several years to make the decision to do that. I, um, you know, being a mom, was more interested in what was going on with my kids and family, of course, and raising them. And, you know, I played golf and I played pretty well. It didn't take me long to realize I could play it pretty good. And I took a lot of lessons. That's me. You know, I want to know. So I took a lot of lessons. And, you know, as I'm going through my journey, I didn't see many people that looked like me 
in the golf business, you know, in the pro shops and the pros that I was paying uh, to teach me to play and my children to play just, you know, mostly didn't look like me at all. And it took my daughter being in a, a golf class and they took away one of the pros that was teaching that the kids really loved and enjoyed. He was African-American and the white guy that took over wasn't as good. But, and I asked the question of one of the managers. I said, well, why is he teaching the kids? He's not having fun with them. And they said, well, he's teaching them because he can and he wants to make the money. And, you know, that was one thing that stuck in the back of my head. And, you know, I put my daughter in a different program and I was the parent that would come out and kind of help with the kids. And I kept doing that in different programs. And even when we moved to Atlanta and people started telling me, you know, you're a good teacher. And so the thought of being a teacher just kind of, you know, got into my head and uh, there was a negative experience with that thought as well with one of the pros that I was paying to teach me. And I was working on whatever thing he was trying to get across to me. And he said to me, I don't know why you're trying so hard. You're never going to be a professional. And, and, you know, that was one of those moments where you felt like it was a cold slap in the face, but I really didn't understand that someone could say something like that to me. And it took me a moment to answer because my husband was paying him a lot of money to give me golf lessons and he shouldn't have been insulting me. But I said to him, I'm trying hard because I know I can do it better. But he planted the seed. I tell people that story because that was, I had only been playing a couple of years and he was the one that actually planted that seed and told me what I was never going to be able to do when I had grown up with strong women, my mom, my aunts, and, you know, mom was always saying, you can do anything you want to do. You can be anything you want to be. So this is what I grew up hearing. And now here's this dude telling me, you know, something that I was never going to be able to do. And it took me several years, though, to make that decision to go pro because I got, quite frankly, tired of not seeing that supportive type of person for a person that looked like me and my children when we came for services in golf and to learn the game uh, better. So that's what finally, finally did it. Mm. Nobody was going to tell Anita what she couldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and that sounds a lot like leadership character that we talk a lot about here at, uh, at TurkNet what we mean by leadership characters, it's, it's built on a strong foundation of integrity. And then there's this balance uh, between building relationships of trust through respect for the people, mm -hmm. along with responsibility for results. So that balance is the key. So, for example, a strong, very effective leader balances self-confidence with humility. Um, mm -hmm. It's a balancing act. And that really describes you, Anita, in my mind. So what key character shaping moment or moments did you experience that you think led to this ability of really balancing your self-confidence with humility? Well, you know, golf is that sport that really drills in the humility piece. As much as I have always known that I was a good athlete, there were many parts of my own self that I didn't know as well. 
and that needed to be maybe honed and appreciated better. And for me, patience was a big one. And with, like I said, with golf, the humility piece, the moment you think you're great, you, uh, you know, knock it in the woods or in the water. So it brings you back to reality. And it also, uh, the patience piece of it, you know, I learned that uh, you don't have to be a good athlete uh, to enjoy just life, sport, and what golf can do for you. And uh, what I saw that golf could do for my children was huge. Just the sense that my son at age 14 started beating me playing golf. So that was humbling. My husband didn't like the idea so much, but that's just reality. And that taught me something too, as a teacher of golf, that it made me feel good when my students could beat me because I felt like then I was doing a good job. And I I know that it's not all about me when I'm out there teaching. It's really about the student. I love that part of it. I call it somewhat the people prize that I get from being involved in golf. And that's where the respect comes in and the trust and the relationships. Well, so among many other opportunities to promote and teach golf to young people of color, including teaching alongside Tiger Woods at his golf clinics for kids, uh, you currently preside over the Women in Golf Foundation uh, as its director, which uh, helps, what I understand, helps develop future women leaders of all colors through the game of golf. What has the impact been of the work you do through this program? Well, I tell you, Ann, it's, it's fantastic because we have bothered to speak to every age group. And it started out with kids from 8 to 12, and then we expanded uh, to 4 to 7. What we realized is that with other sports, there's peewee baseball and, and, you know, kids starting out with tennis and so on and so forth. And uh, if you don't get uh, kids involved early, uh, they'll go and do something else. And um, we also do what we call college prep. So we take those kids from 13 to 17 and we start honing their skills and abilities so that if they're planning to play in college, they can. But the biggest piece that I've mostly enjoyed about our junior program with the foundation is what we we do what we call golf and life skills. And so golf is the carrot that brings them in. But half the day they do life skills. And in the life skills piece, they get to learn just a, a plethora of things. I mean, we've done, they do chess. That's one of the regular things they do. They do table etiquette. We teach them about doing applications for college. Once they turn 13, we start getting into that. Social media. We had them join the Young Eagles, so our kids were able to go up and fly airplanes. You know, just so many things. You know, the the Shark Tank kind of things we've done with them, where they do their business plan. So the life skills piece, to me, is just as big. No, it's bigger than the golf piece. So by the time... We're done with kids, and we're proud to say when we have youth who come in at roughly the age eight and stay with us, 100% of those youth have gotten college scholarships, 100%. Wow. Yeah. That is an impact. That's amazing. We're really proud. 
And then the last piece that we do, which is our signature event that just happened at Callaway Gardens in Georgia, is the national championship for the uh, HBCUs, historically colleges and universities, we do for the girls teams. So we just had that happen and the LPGA uh, awarded our event an exemption for our low medalists to play in the Symmetrator event. And so our low medalist, I'm gonna go ahead and say her name, Kristen Carr, one of my kids since she was eight years old, she won that. And so she'll be playing in Symmetra Tour event in North Carolina. Wow, that's fantastic. Isn't that fantastic? That is fantastic. <laughs> to think back, I don't know how many years ago, we won't say on air, but to think back, it all began with going out on the range and practicing hitting balls with your husband and your and your two babies. <laughs> that is right. Well, so finally, will you spend a little time telling us about your other claim to fame? And that is the, the woman who played golf in all 50 states. How in the world did that become a goal? And uh, will you quickly share also what happened in state number 50? All right. And so, you know, all these questions bring smiles to my face. So the 50 states started with me sitting at my desk one day thinking, man, I've played in a lot of places. So I wrote them down and I had 25 states. And so I kind of paused and looked at it and I said, well, if I played in 25, I might as well play the other 25. So then the journey began. And it was such fun at that point because I gathered people to play with me at certain times just because of, you know, maybe what I was doing with work or whatever travel I was doing. So I had, you know, my buddies go with me to West Virginia. Ron, uh, my husband, went with me a lot of places. But, you know, uh, the time I had my buddies and went to Texas so that we could meet and go play in Arkansas. And when we first started out, the golf course that my friend chose was actually in Texas. And when I looked at the scorecard, we were checking in. I was like, I said to the guy at the counter, I said, are we in Texas? And he said, yes. And I was like, oh no, sorry, we can't play. We got to play in Arkansas. So he said, well, go two blocks and turn left. And there's a golf course over there. It's over the border in Arkansas. So that was fun. And I have to say, and I like to tell people that that journey for me, again, was eye-opening to how uh, wonderful golf is, how beautiful it is, the, how I was so warmly greeted and accepted all over the country, places like Montana and Nebraska, you know, the little mom and pop course where mom and pop literally built that golf course, brought in a pro from Denver and charged all the kids in that farm community $1 a year to play. That's it. And it was beautiful in the midst of cornfields. So there was that experience and I love it. And I played, you know, Pebble Beach and Pinehurst and nice places, but the places that stick are places like the mom and pop as well. So now my husband and I decided that we would do Alaska for 49 and Hawaii for 50. Makes sense because that's their numbers as becoming states. So here we are in Hawaii, and obviously, you know, it's beautiful. Uh, there was a time when three of the top 10 most beautiful courses in the world were in Hawaii. So we're at Kapalua, and it's a perfect day. 
the flowers, magnificent, uh, beautiful. You could see the ocean and Ron was on the tee box and the phone went into an alarm, like Amber Alert Alarm. And I thought it was me that I had done something to make that noise. And, uh, but it was a missile alert that Hawaii was being attacked by a missile. So now, of course, my eyes are as big as saucers when he gets back under the cart and he looked at it and we both are looking at it and we're looking at each other and we're thinking, well, what should we do? You know, and we're thinking we're too far from the condo that we had rented. We, you know, we just didn't know what to do. So I looked at him and I said, well, I guess I better hit this tee shot. So I got up (laughs) and I piped one down the middle of the fairway. Beautiful, you know. And then, of course, you know, yeah, (laughs) that was the missile. (laughs) That was the missile. And the the end of the story was okay because it was uh, uh, somebody at their station that hit a wrong button or something. But uh, uh, yeah, so we were there on fake missile day. That's amazing. And I'm sure everyone will remember that day. Uh, That was an amazing day. A lot of fear, a lot of panic unnecessarily, but uh, not in your case. Well, you know what? When they told us to go back to the clubhouse, that's what they wanted everyone to do. And I looked up and I said, you know, I said a little prayer and I said, Jehovah, you know, I thank you for getting me to this 50th state. And I just know that this is going to be okay. Ah, that's fantastic. Well, I hate to bring this to a close, but we do. We need to. So finally, I would like to hear from you. What do you think our listeners should take away uh, from today's talk? What are the key messages that you want to leave with them? You know, I I truly love questions like that because they're so deep and, and, and meaningful. And the thing that comes to me with that question is a quote that I wrote down years and years ago. And the quote is be ashamed to die until you've scored a victory for humanity. Uh, somebody looked that up for me and I, I realized that it was Horace Mann. And I read it years ago and it just made so much sense to me that even, I don't care, you're the mom, you're the pop, you're the accountant or the nurse, you can score a victory for humanity if you want to. And everybody should want to. That's absolutely beautiful. And uh, it seems that you're scoring victories for humanity just about every day. Uh, So thank you, Anita. So again, uh, for everyone that's been listening, we've been chatting with Anita Castillo, Ladies Professional Golf Association, professional golfer, recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award and director of Women in Golf Foundation, helping young women to grow personally and professionally through the game of golf. If you want to be involved with Women in Golf, uh, I suggest that you go to the Women in Golf Foundation, all in one word, .org, to learn more about how you can become involved in their mission to support girls and young women and how they learn leadership and life skills through golf. Thank you, Anita. And thank you so much.